Hey, good morning. Can we turn the lights down a little bit, these lights? Thanks. Um, Hell is having someone else assign your topic. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about the problem of hell uh, this morning. Uh, Amy was, and I were getting ready this morning before we came to the first service, and she said, look, you're going to talk about heaven. You should just smile. Your face should shine like the face of an angel. And I said, but Amy, I'm talking about hell. And she said, oh, all right. Well, then your normal face will be fine. Um, so, like I said, it's good to have encouragement like that. Um, it, it really builds you up and helps you remember who you are. Um, I can't believe in a loving God who would send good or innocent people to be tortured in hell. Um, Pastor mentioned that question. We're going to deal with that specific one and a bunch of other individual ones a little later on. I thought before we did that, though, we'd take a few minutes just to go through what the Bible actually teaches about hell, what it actually says, some theological basis for the doctrine of hell, some things that kind of require a hell, if you think about it, and, and go through those first. So let's go through those pretty quickly. The doctrine of hell is one of those doctrines that's revealed progressively through Scripture. It's, it's implied in the Old Testament a little more, and then as you get into the New Testament, especially with Jesus, Jesus is the number one uh, teacher about hell we find in the Scripture, and then through the other apostles, and it's more and more explicitly revealed. Uh, in the Old Testament, we have the word, you've heard Sheol, the Hebrew word for the grave, for the place of the dead. In the New Testament, you see the word Hades, also meant hell. Another word, Gehenna. Gehenna is from the Greek, it meant the Valley of Hinnom, outside of Jerusalem. It was a garbage dump that was perpetually burning and putrid. It was known for just being a horrible place, um, away from the city, where they took care of the garbage. And Jesus uses that word quite a bit. In the Old Testament in Genesis, the first reference to a final judgment you see is implied when... When the serpent has, ter- has tempted Adam and Eve and, and God is rebuking him, he says, you will strike his heel, right? but he will crush your head. And there's an implication there of a final judgment for Satan. Uh, and then later on, in, in, there are a number of scriptures. I just picked a couple. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In Isaiah He says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. We're talking about the eternality of the suffering. Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and again in Matthew, Jesus is telling a parable. and He says, Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, in the, in the well-known parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus turns to those who did not minister to people here on earth, and he says, it says, to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then finally, the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
So before we talk about what hell is and, and where it is and that type of thing, some of the theological basis for the doctrine of hell, things that we know that we are taught in Scripture that they actually require there to be a hell. Um, first, it's God's justice and human depravity, those two things together. God is so pure in his holiness and his justice that he can't even look on sin. And our sin is so bad and we're so depraved that those things can't be together. It can't exist in his presence. Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote, The eternal holy God cannot tolerate any sin. How much more than a multitude of daily sins in thought, word, and deed. This is all compounded by the fact that we reject God's immense mercy. And add to this man's readiness to find fault with God's justice and mercy. And we have abundant evidence of the need for hell. If we had a true spiritual awareness, we would not be amazed at hell's severity, but at our own depravity. Uh, next is God's love and human dignity. We know that God is love, and his love is perfect. But love, by definition, cannot be coerced, right? It has to be, the, the one you're asking to love, it has to be freely given. There has to be a choice not to love. And so God, in his love for us, gave us the dignity of that choice for ourselves. He doesn't force us, but he's given us the ability to choose. And those who choose not to love him must be released. They're given their will. They're given what they've asked for and allowed to spend eternity apart from him. They don't have to be. They're not forced to be with him. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce says this, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, In the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Next, God's sovereignty demands a hell. If there's no hell, there's no final victory of good over evil. There's no time in which God finally says that's enough and evil ends. There has to be that, that ending, that time, otherwise he's not sovereign. Jonathan Edwards again says, It is a most unreasonable thing to suppose that there should be no future punishment. To suppose that God, who had made man a rational creature, able to know his duty, and sensible that he's deserving punishment when he does it not, should let man alone and let him live as he will, and never punish him for his sins, and never make any difference between the good and the bad. And then finally, the cross of Christ demands a hell. Why would it be necessary for Christ to come and suffer on the cross if it wasn't to avoid something much worse? Why would God make that trade? There had to be something, some reason, otherwise the cross has no meaning. Why would we need forgiveness from our sins if they were no big deal? The cross of Christ demands a hell. But what is hell? So we read some of the passages before. Hell is eternal separation from God. It isn't a place with a bunch of devils in costumes running around with pitchforks, sticking people. That's, you know, there's so many characters out there, and some of them are jokes, but they begin to creep into our thinking a little bit. It's not a place that God set up so he could torture people. It is nowhere defined in Scripture as a torture chamber, but it's described as a place of eternal torment. And there's a difference between those two words. We kind of conflict them or conflate them sometimes, but torture is inflicted from outside on you or by, from you onto somebody else. It's something that comes from outside of you. Um, but torment is mental and emotional anguish that you feel within. Humans created to be in relationship with God are going to be spending eternity without him, not fulfilling the way that they were created because they chose to be without him and they're going to know that they chose to be without him. And that's the source of the anguish and the, and the, and the, the sorrow and, and the torment. Everyone in hell will know they're there because of their own choice to be separate from God. Um, the fire of hell, is it real? Well, 
it, it, I don't think we should look at it as a literal fire. The Bible doesn't really express it that way. For one thing, it also talks about being outer darkness, so those things would conflict. But instead, the writers are using language to give a, an image of suffering and torment and anguish and what it's like and how bad it would be. It really wouldn't make a lot of sense for it to be literal fire given some of the contradictions that would create. And where is it? It's just simply described as being away, outside of heaven, outside of God's presence. And then how long will it last? There's a teaching called annihilationalism which says that God is going to judge everyone, the righteous go to heaven, and then the sinners are just extinguished. They're just eliminated and don't exist anymore. But that's not taught anywhere in Scripture. The same word, aeonion, that is used, to, it's used in that parable of the sheep and the goats when Jesus says, you know, depart from me into eternal fire. That word there is aeonion. It's the same word for heaven and hell, and it means everlasting. It means eternal. Hell will be for all of eternity. There's no warrant to believe that it's anything less. Um, and in John chapter 5, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It wouldn't make sense to resurrect people to judgment if they weren't going to know that they were being judged because they were going to be extinguished. So we know from that in the scripture that hell, hell is everlasting. So what are some of the common objections that we hear to hell? So first of all, why should we prepare for these questions? Why should Christians really get involved with this? And all of the topics we've studied, Pastor talked about whether Jesus really claimed to be God, whether the Bible and science conflict, um, whether you know, it's more of a moral objection that Christians are all hypocrites. Why should we bother to prepare and do these things? Well, there's a few reasons, I think. I think every Christian needs to do their best to become versed in a way to defend their faith. Uh, for one thing, it strengthens your faith. When you have a hard question and it rattles you, and then you get a good answer, and then there's another hard question, and you get another good answer, what do you start to do after a while? When you hear the question, your first assumption is, oh, let me go find out the good answer. I'm more confident there's going to be a good answer because there were the last six times. And there are good answers for these things. We just have to be willing to do that, and it strengthens us and makes us... Um, just more confident in our faith and more, more able to, to speak with others. Many of us are raising children. If you're not raising children, you will be raising children, or you've already raised them and you have grandchildren. It is a shocking, about, I think it's about 75% of Christian, children, Christian kids who grew up in Christian homes who leave and go away, especially to secular colleges, leave the faith. Why is that? Because they hit an onslaught of people attacking their faith, and they're not prepared <coughs> to deal with it. They don't know how to answer these questions. They seem reasonable, and they don't know how to deconstruct them and see that the questions themselves aren't really uh, fair questions or fair charges. Um, we need to be able to answer the honest questions of honest seekers. Every question, behind every question, is what? A questioner. There's a person. And when someone comes to you and they're just trying to trip you up or trap you or embarrass you, that's a different approach than someone who legitimately wants to know the truth. You can't get into an argument or a fighting, a fight over, with someone over these things. You don't argue someone into heaven. Um, I mentioned the first service. I, I like the website, the Babylon Bee. They have a lot of funny headlines. And they had one that said, study shows that yelling at people, best way to convince them of your position, or something like that. And they show a pie chart with all these different ways you could use with small percentages. And the big, biggest part of the pie chart, about 90%, says call them a Nazi. Right? It doesn't work. Right? You can't yell at people and get them to, to, to listen to you. But you can talk to them. And when you're talking with people, sometimes there's a person who just, they, you know they're not going to listen. They just want to trip you up. or they're gonna, But there's often, very often, another friend or someone else sitting there. 
they're listening. So be careful. Be aware. Um, it's okay if you're not sure of the answer to say, hey, you know what? That's a really good question. Let me go back and get some more information. I'd like to talk to you again about this. I, I know some of the answer. I don't know the whole answer. I really want to have a good answer for you. I don't want to make something up. And come back again and, and, and do it again. Don't be nervous. Um, it's far better to sit in silence and pretend the objection is real. It's far better than doing that. You should, we shouldn't do that. So let's look at the, the objections to the doctrine of hell. Okay, the first one is the one, I can't believe in a loving God who would send good or innocent people to be tortured in hell. So the first thing wrong with this is, I can't believe in a place where it snows on Easter. Yet here we are. Right? It has nothing to do with God's existence. That's a mistake right away in the question. People say, I can't believe in a God who would do this or this or this. God's existence is based on evidence for or against his existence. That's how that judgment is made. You might say, I don't like the teaching about hell. I think the Bible is wrong about that or Christians are wrong about it. You might say God's not really loving, but his existence has nothing to do with it. Um, the second thing here is this assumes that love and justice are contradictory, but they're not. As a matter of fact, love demands justice. Let me give you an example. Anyone ever heard someone say or said to yourself, I deserve a raise? Right? And let's say they did, or you did, right? You deserve a raise. And we're very keen on justice when it's something that we want. Whoever went to the police department went inside and knocked on the, on the door and said, hey, I deserve a ticket. And you, you may, right? You probably were speeding on the way there, right? I deserve a speeding ticket. We're not so crazy about justice when, when justice is not something good for us, right? That doesn't show a problem with justice. That shows a problem with us, right? Love and justice are not contradictory. As a matter of fact, love demands justice. Is it fair for me to have the same result as the person who violates God's law? Would that be just? Would that be love? The next part of this that's got a problem is send. Does God really send people to hell? We talked about that briefly. People, are, and we're going to keep talking about it, it comes up over and over. Hell is a choice that people make. People choose to be separated from God. It is not something that God sends them against their will, screaming and kicking to go into hell. Um, there's another quote, it's for C.S. Lewis, but someone else said it before him, I believe. That the gates of hell are locked on the inside. Uh, and it talks about good. I, I, he wouldn't send good or innocent people. Are there really good and innocent people before God? Is there such a thing? Uh, you know, we instinctively accept that Hitler or Stalin deserve hell. But what we do is we, we continuously underestimate the depravity of our sin and make judgments. It's kind of like this, and I, I've, I know I've used this analogy before, but it's like Hitler and Stalin are way over there, and I'm way over here. I'm so different from them. The problem is God's standard is infinitely far that way. And when he looks at from his perspective, I'm the same as them. I'm far closer to Hitler and Stalin than I am to God's standards. You know, we don't like to think like that because, oh, we're so different. But we're not. It would almost be like two atoms and two molecules and two skin, ce or skin cells in my hand arguing that they're completely different because there's 15 or 20 atoms between them. I can't see that difference. They're the same, right? We're no different. The scripture tells us very clearly that we're all sinners deserving death. They've done tremendous studies in that word all. And you know what it means? It means all. No exceptions. All. Jonathan Edwards in that quarter before said, if we had a true spiritual awareness, we would not be amazed at hell's severity, but at our own depravity. Uh, and then to show kind of how we judge ourselves differently sometimes, and, and we look at others and we give ourselves kind of a break. Uh, there's a poem written by a, a minister. It's kind of anonymous, but I heard it from Michael Ramson. He said, I dreamed death came the other night, and heaven's gates flung wide. With kindly grace, an angel ushered me inside. 
And there to my astonishment stood, excuse me, and there to my astonishment stood folks I'd known on earth, people I judged and labeled as unfit or of little worth. Indignant words rose to my lips, but they were not set free. For every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. And then finally, at the end of that statement is, he wouldn't send people to be tortured in hell. And we talked about that already, the difference between torture and torment. Hell is not a place set up to torture people and inflict pain on them as payment. It's a place where they're in torment and in anguish because they're separated forever from God. Uh, let's go through a few other questions quickly. Um, why punish people in hell? Why not reform them for heaven? Give them a time, get them cleaned up, and then get them in heaven. Well, God does type, provide a time for reformation. It's called life. This assumption, just, this question or argument just simply says we want more time. Whatever God gives, we want a little more. And if you have children, you know that never ends. Um, God can't force free creatures to be reformed. Any more than he forces us to, come, to choose him in the first place, he won't force us to reform and make another choice later. He can't do that. Hell is not for humans. Hell is for the reprobate. It's for those who are unreformable. God knows who they are. Um, there's something, studying philosophy, there's something called Molinism, and one of the, it's kind of sits between Calvinism and Arminianism, and um, it's, it's very good, and there's something called middle knowledge that God has that we don't. Um, we have different kinds of knowledge that are just like God's knowledge in, in type. This is one we don't have. Middle knowledge is God's knowledge of what would happen, of what every one of us in every situation would do. Their knowledge of counterfactuals, I said. And so God, God knows who's reformable. And he reaches out to us with the offer of salvation according to what it would take for us to receive him. And, it, and the Bible tells us that everyone is given an opportunity. We don't know how. They're not all exactly the same. But we trust in God, and we'll talk more about our faith in God's judgment a little later. Why should we assume that someone who rejected Christ in life would change their mind later? Who didn't want to bow the knee to him uh, sooner or bow the knee later? Isn't eternal damnation for temporal sins overkill? If someone sins in this short life, why should they be punished for eternity? Well, we make distinctions in time for punishments all the time. If I kill someone, it only takes a minute. I still spend my life in prison. No one says, well, he only took him a minute. He should probably only, he only sinned for one minute. Let's only put him in prison for a couple minutes. All right, we don't think like that. We give different penalties based on not just the severity of the crime, but who it's committed against, right? If I threaten you, and it's a credible threat, that's a crime, and I can be prosecuted for that crime. But if I threaten the president the same way, that's a different penalty, right? It's totally different. Also, if I kill a dog, that's a crime. I'm not, I can't just go up and kill a dog for no reason. If I kill a dog, I'll be punished, right? But if I kill the dog's owner, it's a big difference. We distinguish. Our sins are against the eternal God, the creator of the universe. And again, it's only by our underestimation of their severity that we could think that they don't matter or can just be waved away. Why did God create people that he knew would go to hell? So God, we talk about possible worlds or possible things God could create. God created what's called the best possible world of possible worlds. Okay? So he couldn't create a world where people would have free choice and would always choose him because that's a contradiction. That's like making a square circle. Okay? God can't do that, which is contradictory, which doesn't make sense. He created a world where true love would exist because free choice would exist, and then he gave us that choice. Some chose to sin. Um, we're sinners by nature, but our nature doesn't force us to sin. For example, we, um, we know that alcoholism 
it's, there's a hereditary factor to it. And people, some people have a predisposition in their bodies, in their systems, where alcohol affects them differently than others, and it's very severe, right? And they're inclined to, to abuse it more than just the average person. We know that exists. We know they have the predisposition. But we don't say, oh, go ahead and drive and drink and drive. If you kill someone in a car, we won't hold you accountable because you have a predisposition. We expect them to control that and take steps to avoid it, right? Um, we have a predisposition, but God spends so much trying to keep us from acting on that. He reaches out to us with a way out. He provides forgiveness and deliverance from that sin if we accept it. Um, why not annihilate sinners instead of leaving them in eternal torment? I mentioned that briefly before. This is sort of an appeal to like a mercy-killing idea, like you would kill an animal who's suffering. But we're not animals. Um, this would kind of be like, for God to do this, would be to, to kill someone or annihilate them just because they didn't choose him. It would be sort of like a father who shoots his son because the young man grows up to disagree with him. Right? That, that wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be just. Um, giving us free choice is much more merciful than wiping us out because we disagree. He's given us the dignity of our choice, and he honors it. Uh, now the last two are a little harder, and these are the ones that are a little more, uh, more deeply felt, so I want to spend more time on these. How can we be happy in heaven knowing that a loved one is in hell? Um, you ever been to a funeral where the person, you know, we never know what passes through people's minds and hearts in their last moments. We really don't. And so I always, you know, caution to just withhold judgment of whether someone's in heaven or hell. That's not my decision. That's above my pay grade. God sorts that out. But you go there and you kind of, you're pretty sure that this person wasn't serving the Lord, that they're not Christian, and they and they're, and they're have Christian relatives. And those people are suffering because they don't have, you wonder how, they get, how do they have hope? Because they're never going to see that person. That person won't be in heaven. That's a hard question. Not because it's particularly difficult, we're going to go through the answer, but because it's hard to deal with. It's hard emotionally. Um, so we have to be sensitive in dealing with that. The first issue here is this question wrongly assumes that we're more merciful than God. For, just to illustrate, God is going to be happy in heaven, and he will know and love all of the people in hell. And he's still able to be happy. So we're not more merciful than him. Why is he able to be happy? Um, if we were unable to be happy in heaven while knowing others were in hell, then those who stubbornly rejected God would be engaging in a sort of blackmail um, over those in heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote about this in his book, The Great Divorce. He said, what some people wrongly say on earth is that the final loss of one soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned is that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else should taste joy, that there should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. So I will not submit to God, I will reject him, and you may not have joy in heaven because I am going to reject Christ. That's the blackmail we're talking about. That, um, that wouldn't make any sense if we're not able to be happy. Um, now, we'd be rightly unhappy if we knew the people had been unjustly sent to hell. And this is the key to the answer, how can God be happy too? But if we're not happy, for example, that people are starving, we're not happy about that. So if I know someone's starving, that, that's something that makes, I, I would be uncomfortable eating knowing there's a starving person in the next room. But it's a different story if I go in and offer them food and they refuse it, right? It's a different story. They've made a choice, and I've honored that choice. Um, and ultimately, this is really a question about God's moral character. How can we be happy in heaven? Because we trust that the God of all the earth will do right. 
We trust that his decisions are, are, are right. Askinus in his book, God in the Dark, um, talks about Abraham when he's, he's told to sacrifice Isaac. He waited for years and years and years for Isaac to be born. This is the promised heir. And now with that explanation, God says, I want you to take, one day just says, I want you to take him, your son, who you love, and go and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. And there's not even a record of Abraham saying, wait a minute, or arguing. He just obeys. And he goes to do it, and you wonder, how could he obey? And God provides a way in the end and, and saves Isaac. But you wonder, how could he do that? And, and Askinus says this, he says, Abraham did not know why, but he knew the God who knew why. There's tremendous comfort, not just in this kind of an issue, but in an issue of the problem of suffering and the problem of evil that we deal with and when we, we go through things, to know that I don't know why, but I know and trust the God who knows why. What do kids do, right? Do your, if you have children who are say, under 10 years old, do they worry about taxes? They worry about politics, the economy. They're concerned about whether the Fed's going to raise rates at the next meeting, right? Not at all. Why? You've got that. Do they worry about where their food... Now, we have one son who will ask today sometime what's for dinner tomorrow. But, um, so he worries about it more than most, but he's a little odd. But for most kids, they don't worry about whether there's going to be food on the table. They may want to know what it is. But they don't worry about whether there'll be... You've got that. And they trust, they don't know how, where it's going to come from, but they know the person who does, and their trust is in that person. That's what we have in our Father. In Genesis 18, Abraham is he's interceding for the, the city of Sodom. The, the men have come to visit him. They've told him they're going to Sodom um, to see the evil there, and they're going to, God's going to destroy it. And they've left, and Abraham is alone with God, and he's praying for Sodom. And he says, if there's even 50 righteous men there, would you save it? And, you know, he asked for 50 and then 5 then 1. But he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is, right, what is just? We've got to not miss the, the meaning here. Abraham is not trying to convince God to do what's right. What he's saying, these are rhetorical questions. I know you're going to do what's right. Of course you're the God of all the earth. Of course you're going to do what's just. You would never put the good death to death together with the evil. You would always do this. He's just repeating to God back God's characteristics that he already knows because he trusts in the judgment of God. And God just promised him if he can find even one righteous man in Sodom, he won't destroy it. And uh, we know obviously that he couldn't because he did. Um, and then in Revelation 19, after God pronounces judgment, um, the, the John writes, And I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude of heaven crying out all at once, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because look at these big, great things he did. Because he gave us all this stuff. Because he made everything good. No, this is what he says. For his judgments are true and just. That's kind of an unusual thing for God to be praised for. But they've heard his judgments, and no one says, oh, wait a minute, I don't think that's quite right. I, I think maybe you've missed a couple you know, here. I think this guy was okay, and that guy's okay. No one questions it. When they hear God's judgment, the response is unanimously, hallelujah, we praise God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. So the scripture is telling us, when we see God's judgment, we will be satisfied. And that's how we can know, as hard as it is, when when people we love on earth choose to go the wrong way, we'll know that they made that choice, that they were given every opportunity, and that they, they are where they chose to be. And then the last question we're going to deal with before we close is, hell is contrary 
to the mercy of God. Um, this, the idea here is that God's mercy precludes justice. You can't have both. You can't have mercy and justice. And you can't have mercy and suffering in hell because what it misses is that God has already offered mercy in this life. He's already done it. The idea that he has to keep, keep offering and a judgment is forever forestalled, that wouldn't be mercy. That would be a weakness. That would contradict in his character, his, judge, his justice. And he would, be, he would be fallible. He wouldn't be God. And it misses the other thing, too, which is that God has already done all that he could to bring us to him. In, in all of this, we, we don't just underestimate our sin and our depravity and what we deserve and what we've chosen. We kind of, like, I didn't choose that. We're choosing it. We underestimate that, but we also we kind of turn a blind eye to what God did to prevent us from having to be in hell, to allow us to be with him, how much he, he did. And this is going to seem like an odd way to, to kind of end a, a discussion of the topic of hell. But uh, in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son. And I want to go through that because I think this is a great way where God illustrates, Jesus illustrates just what the father did for you and for me. And we know that he doesn't want us there, that it's not his will that we, we suffer, his will that we be in torment, because of what he was willing to do. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. What the son is basically saying is, I can't wait for you to die. You're hanging around a little too long. Okay, time to go. I want my share. And so the father, at this point, already is extending mercy. The story is so quick, some of you miss it, but he already is, because what should happen to this son is he should be taken out and beaten. And I don't say it would be funny, but in that culture, that's exactly what would happen, that kind of insolence. It never would have been tolerated. And yet the father doesn't do that. He not only doesn't punish him, but he gives him what he asks for. He gives him his share of the estate. In this case, there were two sons, so he would get one-third. There was a double portion for the older son, And the younger son would get one-third of the estate. He gives it to him. And the older brother, who also should be correcting his younger brother, says nothing. And Jesus continues, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He's already rejected the father once. And now he's left. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You can see Jesus here. This story is ratcheting up. It's burning in the ears of his Jewish listeners. First, the, the insolence of the son. Then the fact that he's with Gentiles, the disgrace of having to sell himself to a Gentile and feed pigs, which would have been just the lowest kind of work for a Jew. Um, but he's gotten what he's deserved, Right? And he's done all of this stuff, and now he's sitting in misery, maybe in torment, just miserable at where he is. And Jesus says, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he begins to think clearly now, and he realizes that his father's hired servants are better off than he is right now. He knows that he's damaged his relationship with his father. He knows that's a problem. He can never be, he doesn't even assume he can be restored to sonship. He can't be a son again. But if he can convince his father to hire him back, maybe he can earn enough 
to buy his freedom again someday and at least be better off than he is now. Notice something here. He doesn't even consider going and making this deal with anybody else. Why not? There were lots of people he could have sold himself to as a hired servant. Why go back to the one you rejected? I mean, he, he fully should have expected to receive retribution and humiliation and go back and crawling back to his father. Why didn't he just go to someone else and make the same offer? I think there's a clue here that he knew something about his father's love ahead of time. But he still doesn't fully understand that his real loss is not the inheritance. It's not the money. It's not his position as son, but it's his relationship with the father. He still doesn't quite get that. He arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This is the most exciting and most interesting part of the story. In many Eastern cultures, this, this parable is also called the parable of the running father. Because in their mind, the father running to the son is just as shocking as what we call the prodigal son because of what he did and how he behaved. See, for an older man to lift up his robe and run was, was humiliating, was disgraceful. It should never happen. Not only that, in those cultures, when, you, when someone comes to your house, the importance of the guest dictates the importance of the person who goes and meets them. At the door. And if it's a really important person, you don't meet him at the door. You go meet him on the road and you bring him back to your house. You remember the story of Elisha and Naaman. When Naaman came, one of the shocking things in that story is not only doesn't Elisha go meet him, no one goes to meet him. He comes to the door and Gehazi, the, the servant, answers the door. And Naaman was probably already a little irritated that I'm Naaman. You know, and no one came. But here, the father doesn't wait inside for someone to bring the son to him as it should be. Instead, you can imagine him sitting on the porch. He was watching for the son, waiting to forgive him. He wasn't just looking out and said, oh, there's that rat, right? He was waiting to forgive him, kind of with his forgiveness in his hands, waiting for someone to come who might accept it. And he gets down and he runs to the son. And the father, when he gets there, he says he embraced him and kissed him. The words there that are used in Greek, they don't mean just like a kiss or a peck. It was like he fell on him and kissed him over and over and over and over again. Um, I think I told this story a couple of years ago, or went through this parable a few years ago, and I told a story about a sister and a, a lady in the church that I grew up in, um, Carmela Mangino. Um, you might guess she was Italian. And back then you called, all the people, we called her Sister Mangino, but she would always sit in the front right about here, in like the third or fourth row, right on the inside. And when I was about 16, I got recruited to help out ushering. Right? So I'm going to usher... And the guy thought, okay, you know, back then you, wore, you usually wore suits and ties to church. Everyone dressed differently everywhere then. And um, so he put me right on the middle aisle. So I came down the middle aisle to take the offering, you know, and sat there at the front and prayed the pastor wouldn't ask me to pray for the offering. And he did, and he got one of the guys. And we started to take the offering. When I get back to Sister Mangino's row, I don't know what happened. But something, she was just so, something about seeing me just as a young boy doing that, she reached up and grabbed me. And she was strong. I mean, she was only about this tall, but... She, she grabbed me behind my neck, pulled me down, and hugged me, and she was kissing me in front of the whole... I was right in the fourth row. The whole church is watching this, and I am, like, utterly, you know, just mortified. That's what I think of when I see this. I, th- I think of Sister Mangino just kissing me. Um, he just, just falls on him, kissing him again and again. And the son said to him, Father, he begins to go into his re- rehearsed um, strategy here. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. What happened to the part about being a hired servant? Right? He didn't get that far. The father cuts him off. He doesn't want to hear any of that. He doesn't care about all that nonsense. Right? He realizes now, finally, that the usual isn't the squandered money or how he was going to support himself in the future. It's the relationship that was broken. And the father restores him immediately. No waiting period. No conditions. If you do this, then I'll do this. Without receiving anything from the son, because the son has nothing to give. It's not a grudging forgiveness either. The father doesn't say, all right. Right? He punctuates it by bringing, he's unembarrassed. He brings him in the house, kills the fattened calf for a special occasion, and calls everyone in to celebrate. And then Jesus continues. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. Now it becomes clear this story is not about a man who lost his youngest son, but it's about a man with two lost sons, one lost and far away and one lost and very near. The older son who earlier made no, didn't distinguish himself by his noble defense of his father now finds his righteous indignation and corrects and rebukes the father. Although the father has called for all to come celebrate, the older son now defiantly refuses to go in to the father. So Jesus says again, So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. And he repeats this again. For your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. See, just like the younger son, the older son doesn't understand the priority of the relationship. He focuses on what he's done. I served you. What he hasn't done, I didn't disobey. He does not understand the father's love. And get this, nothing he does can earn it. Just like nothing his brother did can separate him from it. The father shows the same mercy and forgiveness to him that he showed earlier to the younger son. He comes out to him again with his forgiveness in his hands to forgive him because he's wrong. He deserves punishment for how he's behaving. But again, the father comes at his own expense of his own pride and initiates reconciliation or attempts to with him just like he did with the younger son. He entreats him. He says he literally begs him to do what is best for him. And then Jesus does something even more astonishing. He doesn't finish the story. He leaves us without knowing what the older son did. We're left to wonder whether he accepted the forgiveness, completing the reconciliation, or if he stayed outside in darkness, away, separated from the Father. When there was nothing that we could do to satisfy, satisfy God's justice, he ran to us. He ran to you. He ran to me. Some of us, he ran to us more than one time. Right? He paid the price for our sin so that we would not have to spend 
to provide a way for us not to spend eternity separated from him, but so that we can be brought back into his presence because when he looks at us, he sees his son. The gold ring, this ring is valuable not because of what it can do. It does nothing. I can't even get it off um, unless I lose my finger. Um, it, it, but if I, t- if I could get it off, it would just lay here. It wouldn't do anything. Can't do tricks. It has no value. It has a minor amount of maybe industrial value, but pretty, pretty insignificant. Why is it valuable? It's valuable. Gold is valuable because of what somebody will pay for it. When we wonder about how God can do things, we begin to question his moral character, his, his judgment, is he f- being fair. Remember that he, what he paid for you and for everyone, whatever our choices, he gives us the dignity, we said before, of our free choice. But what was the price that he paid for us? He gave it all and he paid for us. So we could be with him in eternity. And we wouldn't have to be separated. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you loved us so much. That when we rejected you, you continued with arms outstretched, Lord, to offer your forgiveness. That you ran to us. That you made a way to reconcile us to you. So that we could avoid separation from you and be united with you as you intended us to be. Father, we praise you and we give you glory for your judgment is just. And we're so thankful, Lord, to serve a God who loves us and is just. I pray that you would help us, Father, as we deal with difficult questions, as we interact with neighbors and friends and co-workers and children and and parents and whoever, unsaved uh, relatives, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, Lord. You would show us what to say, Lord. You would show us how to lead them, how to guide them and show them you. Because we know that's where salvation is. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.